Attention Greendale students and welcome to Streets Behind, a podcast about the TV show community. Hosted by two friends who met on campus but couldn't hang out during the pandemic. So we started this podcast to stay connected. And together we come up with so many insights about the show and the characters that we never would have thought of on our own. We know it's not perfect, but if it was, it wouldn't be Greendale. So join us. You're already already accepted. accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. like we're recording all right hold on (laughs) all right now what's up everybody and welcome back to our fan pod about our beloved sitcom community today we are discussing season one episode five the title of which is advanced criminal law and joining me as always is my co-host sandy caldrone sandy welcome to the show so i think we were going to talk about today Uh, maybe three sort of main plot points to kind of frame our discussion. And then obviously we'll, you know, take our twists and turns as we always do and discuss some of the more thematic or kind of broader things. But I thought for me, um, first of all, I'll say I like this episode. I thought it was a good episode and basically three plot points um, that sort of run parallel to each other don't necessarily intertwine, which is interesting in and of itself. But those three plot points are obviously Britta gets busted for cheating and then quote unquote goes on trial. Uh, Number two, the development of the friendship between Troy and Abed. And then number three, Pierce is tasked for writing a school song for the Dean who is going to unveil a statue of Luis Guzman, which I know (laughs) we will talk about, uh, who is an alum of Greendale Community College. But so Pierce is writing that song and Annie, I guess, is like part of the committee to get the song written or whatever, and sort of like is mentoring him or whatever, encouraging him with writing the song. And it also sort of speaks to their relationship and and Mm -hmm. their friendship. So those were the three main points or sort of main plot points but I know there was maybe some things you wanted to add was there anything you want to uh yeah discuss today get on the docket yeah I I I agree that this was a really enjoyable episode it's really fun to watch even for like the sixth time (laughs) Um, (laughs) and one of the things I've noticed in general as we're kind of watching these intentionally for the first time and not just kind of you know like for entertainment or while I'm eating dinner or whatever Mm -hmm. is I again, notice how much is going on in setting up the world in this one episode. Like their lines are oftentimes kind of like ludicrous and funny, but they all still serve to like reveal more of Greendale and the mm. characters to you. Mm. Um, and I, I think that stood out for me, especially in this episode, it kind of evoked like, world building that I'm used to seeing in you know like fantasy stories that you know the world building is obvious because like you're on maybe like a different planet from earth and like things have different names and you have to establish those um Mm. but in this case it doesn't kind of you know reach out and slap you like that because he's not renaming earth (laughs) but (laughs) I think that the the writers are like they clearly have 
a vision for how the world of Greendale works and what it looks like. And it's not exactly like a normal community college. So they've intentionally built up this world. And I thought you really get to see that in this episode. That's a great point. And I think part of what I noticed, I mean, as is often the case, I hadn't really thought about that aspect of this episode until you, until you're bringing it up here for our pod. But now that you mentioned it, there were several firsts, either an appearance of a character or the first reference of a thing or something like that. And maybe when we discuss this in a little more detail, like I'll, I'll just throw out a couple things that I noticed because I think when you start to watch this show and certain things just become part of the characters or their communication or their history or the, you know, this world that they're building, as you say, for me, that's always a big part of like a show like this is when things happen first, because mm-hmm. there has to be a first time that these things come into the show. But then it's amazing how you don't really notice it until you're watching the show with intentionally, as you say, you know what I mean? Like it's just something that happens. And then three or four episodes later, you're like, Oh, they always mention this thing or they always do this thing. But that's what is, what is kind of cool to me is like, you know, when you first see a character, something first happens or a catchphrase is said for the first time, you know, like now watching it intentionally, you're like, Oh, that's the first episode where they did that. And that's kind of geeky. I like, I like that though. Um, But to your point, it's like, they all happen so seamlessly and become such a fabric Mm -hmm. of the, of the show of the world that, yeah, as you say, I think you really see the writers and their vision for what Greendale community college was even beyond the seven main characters, right? There's, Mm -hmm. there's so much detail in this world in some ways. Um, Yeah. And in this episode we get, so the the main characters, of course, but then we also get a lot of other uh, Greendalian community members. We get (laughs) the Dean in this episode who makes an entrance and then, comments on how he got to make a great entrance so that is maybe one of the first of the dean kind of popping in with something ridiculous to say um we get uh, professor duncan garrett's around leonard is around <laughs> Luis Guzman is not starring in this episode but he's kind of a character in it but he's central to it yeah <laughs> no <laughs> and we have senior chang of course too yeah yeah no, it's so true. And you're absolutely right. The um, That is one of the first I wanted to mention uh, was the Dean's entrance and the self-aware um, or like self-reflexive commentary on it. Yeah. So before we maybe go a little deeper into that community building, I thought maybe we could just talk about the plot points because in a sense these plot points are like resolved really quickly. So I'll just throw out the first one. Britta gets busted for cheating in Senior Mm -hmm. Chang's class, right? And that means she has to go on trial (laughs) in Borchard Hall, which is where the Olympic-sized pool is. (laughs) And in such a great like Greendale moment, she's on trial. The, The like presiding jury is Dean Pelton, Professor Duncan, and Senior Chang, who is the teacher of the class that she cheated in, yep. Jeff Winger gets to represent her and refers to her as my client, even though it's just like <laughs> a cheating thing. There's like shenanigans happening in the pool in the background. Um, and then 
the main sort of or one of the central themes of that part of the plot is that the dean is really insistent on letting everyone know they have a six thousand dollar table for this <laughs> that has like a built-in pa <laughs> yeah it's so revealing of the dean's character right that like this weird little man loves this school and has just no idea how to properly channel that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, so this cheating trial reveals a lot more about the characters in Greendale than just your, your run of the mill garden variety cheating storyline does because it starts with Britta denying that she's done it. And then when Chang threatens to flunk everyone until someone cops to it, Britta in like very, you know, Britta activist fashion decides to turn herself in to save the rest of the group. Um, and not just her study group, but the rest of the classroom, hoping that it will endear her to them. And they, at Chang's prompt, immediately turn on her for her sacrifice. <laughs> Which is so Britta and it's so Greendale. Also the fact that they're actually throwing like paper, like yeah. wadded up paper at her. Like they, they actually take like a physical approach to showing her that they yeah. are just so disapproving. But it's also funny because of the like group morality. Like suddenly they're just yes. all above it. <laughs> they're just like, man, you're the worst. You cheated on this, you know. They're such a mob. They have mob such mentality. A mob. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that was, I guess, the thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of this plot point was just how Britta's character gets developed. I mean, maybe in a way, what I want to say is that it's more about how at this stage of community, it's about her characters being established mm -hmm. because then it develops in different ways. And I know we've talked about this in some of our pods up to this point of the season, but you know, the interesting thing about Britta here is she sort of is opening up to Jeff, which, by the way, they take their recesses in like showers and locker rooms. Right, and locker rooms, yeah. yeah. But she's she sort of opens herself up to Jeff and effectively tells him that she has poor self-esteem. She wasn't confident enough in her ability to pass the Spanish class because she always screws things up. She wanted to get caught. So she left that little crib sheet behind where Chang would find it. Um, all of this stuff was really interesting to me because, it, yeah, it, it there's there was this real emotional depth and like psychological self-awareness to Britta here. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about, as the seasons goes on, she just becomes this sort of vapid character at times who quote unquote Britta's things who screws things up now they don't start using her name as a verb till later seasons but in a way this is like an initial instance of that so I thought it was interesting now upon reflection is you definitely see that there's something about Britta and her self-sabotaging and her ability mm -hmm. to screw things up and become sort of like the person in the group, maybe other than Winger, who everyone gets upset at because of what they did and its effect on the group. And yet, like, that dialogue between her and Jeff in the shower was so... I thought it was really good. I mean, there was, like, a real, like, emotional honesty and depth to it. And Jillian Jacobs plays that so, so well. Yeah. Um, and so that's all just to say, it then again, is disappointing to me when you think about where that character goes. Um, is it is it Jillian Jacobs or Gillian Jacobs? Oh, actually, I don't know. I guess apologies to her. I always thought it was Jillian. Is it Gillian? I think it might be. We should oh. check. 
Yes, I'm sorry. That's the kind of thing that I don't even... <laughs> what a terrible fan pod we host. I don't even think about <laughs> stuff like that. Um, Let's ask the internet. Yeah, it, it, it's actually Joel Mikhail. <laughs> no, <you know? laughs> um, apologies to, to her. But, she, but as an actress, though, she's great at those moments. And that's why it gets a little frustrating that they kind of limit some of that from her. But I don't know, maybe she said she wanted to change and wanted to try something different with the character, you know? Okay, so I'm asking the internet about this. We don't have to keep this in the show. But one of the things that comes up is uh, clips of her talking about her own name. (laughs) Okay, let me take a brief detour to listen to this. I can see how she pronounces it. it's gillian she confirms okay now we know nice that's all staying in um so (laughs) but but don't you think though that that she is great at at those moments like those sort of emotional she is revelations as an actor yeah she really nails it and this is one of those times where, like, although most of what happens at Greendale is ridiculous, some of the human qualities do really ring true. Like we talked previously about how, like, you know, you either dated someone really kind of bad for you <laughs> in college or you know someone else who did. And this is another one of those scenarios. Like you can picture people that you knew or, or maybe yourself having these moments in college of self-sabotage where you kind of just want to get the failure over with, as Britta says. But it's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Because in a way, I think about some of the all-nighters I pulled to like write a term paper or study Mm -hmm. for an exam. But probably in some way, I knew I wasn't going to get an A. You know what I mean? And you think, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe part of the reason I kind of gave myself no time to do this is A, because I'm an idiot and I procrastinate. But also B, just because I'm not really interested in this class and I kind of know I'm not going to do well in it. And it's like, Mm -hmm. in a way, you're like, I just want to get it over with. I want to get the like, the fact that I didn't do my best or couldn't do my best in this particular class or something Mm -hmm. you know like you just want to get it over with it's interesting I hadn't thought about that the other thing that I thought that was sort of part of this storyline is that you know the classic like Jeff Winger summation of the show and like the moral episode or the like moral lesson sometimes you get you know if we can call it that I thought it was funny that in this instance Jeff's kind of like like big speech at the end and his ethical sort of like yeah, his ethical speech or his ethics speech was actually the summation <laughs> of this quote unquote trial. <laughs> you know yep. I mean? It was just like so perfectly written that in this instance, he's actually pretending to be a lawyer in front of an Olympic sized pool at like a, tri- a trial for a cheating classmate. And <laughs> that's like his big summation at the end. It's like his big, you know, TV show lawyer moment or whatever. His closing arguments, yeah. Exactly. It's his closing argument. And that's what's so funny about it is that in this instance, it is his closing closing (laughs) argument. It's like so on the nose and meta. It's like so really, really good. Um, Well, and the content of his argument really kind of solidifies the character of the school because his, his argument, so to summarize his argument, right, is that, um, yes, Britta cheated. She did it out of self-sabotage, which makes her crazy. 
and she's not fit for the outer world. <laughs> we need crazy people to be welcomed at Greendale because otherwise, well, where else are we going to go? Um, and so the punishment in quote that he suggests is that she continue her education. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but specifically there at Greendale, you know, like, yes. yeah, the punishment is, is that you have to stay here. And this becomes sort of a theme in the show because there's other episodes we'll talk about in the future where it becomes this like, but all we have at Greendale is us, you know, mm -hmm. like we know that City College or whatever makes fun of us when we get to some of those episodes. We know that other people see us as like the laughing stock. We know that we're all kind of crazy or somehow our life was such that it led us to this place where we could all find each other, that we could be this community but part of that part of that staying a community or if you will like retaining that community is that we all have to be loyal enough to each other and the place to like stay like other people can't make fun of Greendale, but we can, you know, mm -hmm. other people may not want to like be here, but we want to be here because we know it's the only place that our kind of crazy gets accepted because we're amongst a community here. So yeah, yeah. it's really interesting to me that there's that, yes, his closing argument not only is like an, uh, you know, a actual closing argument again, in air quotes that people can see since <laughs> Brit is on trial, but his point is, and very early in the space of the show as a whole, it's that like, but this is the, the only place we could belong and be ourselves. That kind of then becomes a theme of the show. And to go back to what we were talking about last week with the community building, and I think that was part of your point then, is that's part of being a community, is that yeah. you accept each other for who you are. And in a sense, the community is the space that you are allowed to be, if not your whole self, but a particular aspect of yourself. Yeah, I really think so too. And I, they do throughout the, the rest of the show have this attitude of like, well, Greendale may be ridiculous, but it's ours. Yeah, exactly. There's that ownership, that loyalty. It's like, it's our crazy. It's our ridiculous. It's our subpar, you know, like we know some <laughs> of the amenities suck and like it doesn't, things don't work. And, you know, we know we have an anus flag or whatever for our school, you know, but it's like, but it's ours. And, and that was one thing now that I hadn't necessarily thought about this, but now that you're talking about Jeff's closing argument, his ultimate defense for Britta is really so much a part of the show that like it's our space and everybody else can piss off basically <laughs> like this is our space and it is what it is and we know what it is but like we don't really want your opinions on it sort of thing and you know if that's not family then what is exactly but it is it makes it such a dysfunctional family in this sense so shifting gears a little bit, uh, one of the second, or sorry, the second plot point that I thought framed the show is Troy and Abed, their relationship. And obviously Abed's awkwardness, his, you know, maybe being on the spectrum or whatever, he doesn't 
he and, he, and in this instance specifically he's gullible it, it emerges that he's mm-hmm. gullible but troy messes with him you know he believes some of this stuff and troy's kind of like no one's ever messed with you before and so then as it turns out abed devises this kind of elaborate scheme to quote unquote mess with troy but makes it so obvious that he's messing with him that troy knows the whole time and yet that obviousness puts Troy in a couple situations where he kind of makes a face like, wait, should I be worried? Is this, you know, like he kind of second guesses it. (laughs) And then as it comes out, it's like all a way of Abed sort of pushing back on Troy and saying like, look, I know I don't get this stuff, but you say you want to be my friend. So like, you shouldn't mess with me. Right. And that's like the lesson of that part of the show is, but like ultimately friends don't really mess with each other. if, if, If I, you know, sort of view that correctly. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things about Abed here is that we see him um, where he doesn't have kind of like an instinctual understanding of these social cues, but he is trying to kind of like document and analyze the rules of the system so he can then play within them. Um, And he, of course, doesn't get it quite exactly right because that's not how social interaction really works. Like a lot of it is instinctual. But you see that like... In another show, Troy, the jock prom king character, would use that as an opportunity to be cruel to Abed. And instead, he becomes more caring. He becomes protective of Abed. He kind of understands that, like, okay, if Abed and I are going to be friends, I'm going to have to adjust to him, and that's okay. It's a great point because this is one of the layers of Troy that's so interesting, these early parts of the show, is that. He's obviously very self-conscious that his football career didn't work out, that he's this former jock, was kind of, you know, like the it guy on campus or whatever mm-hmm. at his high school. But you're right. To go back to these sort of um, John Hughes films or like, you know, these sort of 80s high school mm-hmm. coming of age films we often reference, that's who that character is often, totally. is the bully. And in fact, there's usually a token bully captain of the football team type of character that's <laughs> in that written into that right so you get that and in this case though it would be so easy for troy to mess with abed uh, or i guess he does mess with him but i mean to to bully him i should say Mm -hmm. it'd be so easy for troy to bully abed he doesn't he really sees it as a moment as you say and i think you're spot on with that it's uh, his recognition that he does want to be abed's friend but being abed's friend requires you know a certain a certain relationship a certain way of interacting Mm-hmm. He has what to I adapt. Thought... Sorry? He has to adapt. And we're not going to expect Abed to be the only one to adapt to other people. Exactly. Exactly. He has to adapt. Troy has to adapt. And the other thing that I think is interesting and maybe a layer in this is that it's not as if Abed has necessarily provided anything yet for Troy that would make him try and maintain a good relationship. So it's not as if he's forced Abed to do his homework or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, you haven't really seen them ever study for Spanish. So you don't know that Abed's <laughs> like a genius in Spanish and Troy needs him. Like, I love how this show doesn't do that. It's not, yeah. I mean, so you're, you're right that Troy doesn't become a token bully. And then I think it's also cool that at this point they're genuinely friends with each other or becoming friends. It's not like either one of them gives the other person a social advantage, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And yeah, I think it's not that a just, transaction. It's not a transactional relationship. They're really building a friendship, a friendship which when they come to the resolution, 
that being friends will be not messing with each other. And in a sense, not taking advantage of, of Abed's gullibility. Mm -hmm. Um, they do their first, like their little handshake, that little gap they do where they like slap their chest and like, or whatever. So, um, to go sort of signpost again to some of the, uh, world building we'll talk about in the future i think that was the first time they did that and that just becomes like a standard troy and abed thing so it's cool that like in a sense you could say this is where they really become friends because they establish they establish some ground rules for their relationship and they close that moment of like understanding or sharing or you know that communication to really establish what their some of the parameters and groundwork for their friendship it ends in that thing that then becomes so like a part of their you know, their relationship, their little handshake. Yeah, this is definitely the first time you feel you don't just have Abed and then also Troy. This is the like the first solid moment, I think, of Troy and Abed as a, a pair. Yeah, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that until you said that. But other than maybe the codas where it's like kind of the two of them interacting. But yeah, you do feel like maybe in the past, just because Abed's character is awkward, that... Abed is sort of kind of satelliting around the group in general. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just because he hasn't really fit in. But I like the way you phrase that, that this is kind of the first time you see them as partners, as equals, you know, in this friendship. And again, not that there's been any necessarily hierarchy or like bullying, but it's just uh, Abed's awkwardness is always front and center, you know, Mm -hmm. in the show to some extent, all the way through. And that's sort of been clear that he's trying to work his way through like how to be friends with quote unquote, you know, normal people or whatever. Um, But no, I like the way you say that it's true. This is like the first time that you sort of see them. And in a way, it's partly because Abed does mess with Troy enough to kind of make Troy squint and think like, wait, is that is he messing with me? Like what's going on here? What's this like language he's writing in or whatever? I also think too, it's it was cool that they sort of made that all of these plot points sort of separate where there's these pairings like Jeff and Britta, Troy and Abed. And then the third one I wanted to talk about was Pierce and and Annie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's cool that these are like sort of parallel pairings. We've talked a lot about how the, you get these pairings um, within the group. And so that third one for the unveiling of the Luis Guzman, I mean, I can't even say it with it. The <laughs> unveiling of the Luis Guzman statue. There's going to be a school song. Annie is on the committee to oversee this process, which in a way says a lot about her character because she's always involved. She's always on these committees. You know, she's like deeply in sort of the administrative fabric of Greendale Community College. Um, <laughs> Pierce claims to be a musical genius because he wrote the Hawthorne's White or the Hawthorne Wipes jingle, which as it turns out, he basically took uh, She'll Be Coming <laughs> Around the Mountain and just like rewrote it as the Hawthorne's White jingle. Uh, but so, yeah, um Pierce writes the Greendale song, which is also going to be unveiled or launched at this unveiling of the Luis Guzman statue at the end. But I also thought beyond um, some great lines and some really funny moments from that interaction, it does speak to a relationship that we'll see where not in a leering or like lecherous or perverted way in any sense, in like a really fatherly or like grandfatherly sort of way, Pierce over the season starts to really care for Annie and really look Mm -hmm. out for. 
And I thought the show always did a good job at never making that uncomfortable. Like, oh, he's like so much older than her. You know what I mean? Um, there's just yeah. like, a, and because he's sort of a, you know, he's a racist, he's a sexist, he's a jerk. But there are times when he interacts with her where it's, you can see he's just like, well, I just, maybe he doesn't have his own family, or at least if he does, he's not close to them or whatever. And and uh, yeah, so I thought you saw some of the beginnings of that here. For sure. And it is now that you mention it, it's impressive that it doesn't come off as creepy. Pierce is creepy in a lot of situations, but in his interactions with Annie, like it, they just don't have that tint to them. And that's, that's impressive that they pulled that off between the writing and the acting. I agree. And well said, it's, it's, it's so impressive that between the writing and the acting, they found a way to not make it creepy because to just point ahead to a couple things, but there's an episode where Pierce is dating and maybe going to marry like a much younger woman who is mm-hmm. from, I think, like a rival company or is the daughter of the head mm-hmm. of a rival company. There's an episode where he has an escort with him at like a, <laughs> yep. a nightclub or like some sort of party at the end of the episode. And there's many things about Pierce that are creepy. But in this sense, yeah, it's always like, yeah, I just, I never react to it in that sort of way. It mm-hmm. always seems like, Uh, And maybe this is part of the care that they took in writing this character is there had to be one thing that redeemed him. And in a sense, he sees Annie as just being like a a younger person who needs someone who maybe isn't supported by her family or whatever Mm -hmm. and like needs some support. And he just genuinely wants to see her succeed. Um, I think that's kind of cool. But in this instance, there's a bit of the role reversal because Annie's kind of the one driving him to, you know, to write this song. And Pierce is obviously clearly struggling real quick um on chevy chase i can't remember if i've mentioned this before but he has perfect pitch or what he is like musically really talented so i think when he's playing her out on the piano i think that he's actually probably playing that piano no i don't know how they recorded the sound i mean maybe maybe not like maybe they had to add it in post or whatever but But he's capable of it yeah exactly thank you let's put it this way he's capable of having like played that little like i'm playing you out or whatever um yeah and he's (laughs) and he's someone who has perfect pitch which means he can like yeah recognize and sing like you know perfect notes or whatever but so i I, it's funny i guess my point there sorry for that digression but it is interesting because chevy chase is multi-talented i didn't know um, that and obviously always has been but it's interesting here that Annie's sort of in the the lead position because she's sort of driving Mm -hmm. him to write this song and the way it comes up is that she gives him a great speech it's a great monologue and she says something at the end of that monologue that inspires Pierce but as it turns out it is yet again a song that he's stealing uh, which is so Greendale you know they just and he's cheating we have more cheating in the episode nice I hadn't even thought about that it's true these stages yeah he's cutting corners um would you mind if I read because I wrote it down word for word Annie's monologue because this is fantastic. And yeah, so are you going to deliver Annie's monologue? I'm not going to deliver it because I couldn't. And let me say this. This is, I think, the first moment in the show where you really get to see Alison Brie as an actor. Like, this is one of the first times they really let her just have some space and kind of do her thing. And so the way she delivers it is great because she modulates her, her pace, her tone, her volume. I mean, it's a great delivery. But the speech she gives him, she walks in and he's like, he's been asleep. He's still struggling or whatever. 
she's he's struggling to write the song and it's clear that they're like running up on deadline and basically she needs to give him that like motivational speech that again mm-hmm. you get in these sort of high school coming of age whatever kind of movies but her speech is i'm going to tell you what my mother told me when i wanted to quit cheerleading you're not very pretty you have no boobs and you can't do a basket toss to save your life but you made a commitment so pick up your pom-poms so sorry, so pick up your pom-poms, Pierce, stuff your bra, and get ready for the team bus to forget you at a Taco Bell because life is tough. But we soldier on, and that's just the way it goes. And so Pierce repeats, you know, kind of like whispering or muttering to himself, looking off in the distance, that's just the way it goes, which then leads him to rip off Bruce Hornsby's That's just the way it is for the Greendale theme song. I'm gonna I'm gonna lightly clap so it doesn't give us a hot mic, but so <laughs> well done to Alison Brie for that delivery for that monologue I'm sorry I didn't do it any justice but to the writers I uh, just so so well done and again it ages Pierce in a way and for people like you and me that grew up when we grew up I mean if you were a kid in the 80s and you listened to pop rate you know that that was a chart topper yeah. everybody or maybe it was early 90s I guess I can't remember but it's it's of our era everybody knows Bruce Hornsby's <laughs> that's just the way it is because that was a major massive tune that was like a yeah. Casey Kasem top 40 you know smash it and in a broadcast era when you didn't have on demand everything by choice and you know you've got music yeah. from the radio yeah yeah everybody knew that song yeah no that's exactly it it was a song everybody knew just from like driving around in your car or yeah. whatever yeah but so thank you for indulging me but that's such a great scene she delivers it so well and like i said i really thought that was kind of her first moment to um yeah get to express her acting chops a little bit in her range and very very funny like great comedic actor Alison Brie well and she also earlier in this episode when um they're in Spanish class and Senor Chang is threatening to fail everyone (laughs) Annie screams bloody murder (laughs) and it's so good so good to the point where you know this comes back in later episodes they have Annie scream again and you know it's just because everyone loved it so much this time around nice I hadn't even thought about that how that must have been one of those moments where they're like oh that was so good we struck gold yeah yeah we had I forgot she does end up that scream becomes a bit of a thing and Uh the the best part about it is when she does that scream in this scene um when they go to the close-up like you can actually see her looking like red and almost like, you know, like like catching her breath. I mean, mm-hmm. it's so well done. She puts everything into that scream. It's amazing. <laughs> um, another good monologue takes place at the beginning of the show with Senior Chang when he's breaking down the cheating scandal. Um <laughs> He asked Starburns if it was him. And he's like, Starburns says, my name's Alex. And he says, well, maybe you should spend five hours carving that into your face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talks about talks about Shirley as Jack A. I mean, it's just so good. He is just working that room over. It's so harsh. I believe he calls Abed uh, Kumar. I mean, it's just so offensive, so bad. Yep. But he says, everyone's going to get a zero. And then he says, except you, Troy. And there's some kid named Troy at the front. And he touches his face, like yes. really creepily and starts to stroke his face <laughs> with the crib note that, <laughs> that Britta left behind. It's like, oh my God. But um, j- yeah, great, 
two great monologues. I, I'm calling them monologues. I don't know if that's the, really the technical term here, but two great moments from these characters mm -hmm. um, and, and that both of them get a little space. Although Chang, I think, has already had space to kind of show what he can do or Ken Jong anyway, but the but I did want to say with that whole storyline between Pierce and Annie, I liked that you start to see his non-creepy, true, genuine support of her and affection for her and and wanting her to be successful. Um, because in a sense, he's doing this for her, right? Like he want mm -hmm. he wants to get the credit for the song, but he also wants, you know, to know that Annie pulled this off since she's been tasked with it. Uh, and again, just the Alison Brie moment of being able to really show her range. Well, and like the, the song itself demonstrates that, right? Because he writes her into the song. Part One of the lines of the song is Annie believes in me. Yeah. Yeah. It's great too, because he, he dedicates, he says, this is dedicated, or this is for Annie or something like that. Mm -hmm. or this goes out to Annie. And then the line from the, from the Bruce Hornsby song is, um, Oh, don't you, I think it's just, oh, don't you believe me or so, or don't you believe it or something like this isn't any belief in me. Yeah. It's just, I mean, just the way they paralleled the lyrics. And that's funny, too, because um, Abed's sitting there on a bench with Jeff and Britta and he says something like, you know, like, can they sue us for copyright? And <laughs> Jeff's like, I don't know. And then as soon as the like the chorus comes along and it's basically word for word, yeah. Jeff's like, yeah, they got us or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so good but also it's funny because how are they gonna know it's not like greendale's gonna broadcast this song to the world oh to that's go back so the, true you know like that, <laughs> that part made me laugh because he's like yeah they got us no one's ever good no one cares yeah nobody from bmi or whatever record company has these right no one's gonna notice <laughs> Real quick before we shift gears. So when earlier when she comes in and is kind of like, dude, what are you doing? And he says something like, you can tell the Dean I'll have a song that'll make the devil poop God's <laughs> pants. <laughs> So, yeah, and then she says, like, you know, you have like a Chinese takeout menu for sheet music. He says a musician sees music and everything. And later to, to get her to leave the room before he plays her out, he says, you are inside a throbbing cosmic womb of creativity. And when this baby starts kicking, I cannot be responsible for your sanity. Just like Pierce had great, great lines. Just you're right. Their whole interaction, I thought, was just really well written. And for me, it was like the funniest parts of the show. Um, and to just put a final hat on that discussion, I just yeah. want to say Please. slot pails and pantyhose. <laughs> Greendale slot pail. <laughs> or, when he's, or when he's like going through the registers, like green, you know, Greendale, green, Greendale, <laughs> like trying to find it. <laughs> it's amazing. But then Annie, who doesn't have any musical talent, you would assume because she's like not the one writing the song, uh, just, tells, just calls him. She's like, dude, I'm hearing the same two notes. <laughs> <laughs> which is what he gives her the whole like you know you don't understand creativity but so one of those threads that we pulled on right there that I thought would be a good segue to um one of the things you wanted to talk about which is this world building this is yet again a great moment for the writers they picked like the perfect actor and character <laughs> actor to be what Dean Pelton calls a quote-unquote prestigious alum of the university um which by the way he's given his morning message at the beginning of the show right and you uh -huh. know that's like first time we've had that in a while and he just calls him um a, a prestigious alum or whatever but the reason i think louise guzman is great is because number one louise guzman is a great character actor this is mm -hmm. not like a bad actor but he's very generationally specific i think people of our generation it's like one of those things where someone says louise guzman 
you immediately can see his face, but you might struggle to remember like some of the movies you've seen him in sort of thing, Oh yeah, you know, but you're like, oh yeah, Luis Guzman. No, I know that guy. He's great. But the other thing I thought about with this is it's not like they picked a famous A-lister, like some type of household name that everybody yeah. knows to be the alum, because they knew that would just be ridiculous. There's something so realistic about Luis Guzman <laughs> or someone of that like ilk that you could, you know, of that sort of um, a level of celebrity, I guess, um, where yeah. it's believable, but also... He's a great actor. He's not someone who seems to take bad roles or bad film. Like, I mean, you have respect for Luis Guzman. So it was like the perfect decision from the writers. Yeah. And like they they picked a, a celebrity who's known for his character acting and not known for his like, you know, personality. Like he's not showing up in tabloids. Like he's not a celebrity in the like TMZ sense so much. He is somebody who's just like without pretension. And yeah, I, I could believe that he went to Greendale. It's so believable. And then, and you're right, there's nothing like pretentious about him. It's so believable. But the other thing too, is that the statue itself is like kind of <laughs> realistic, but there's no emotion <laughs> in it. It's just like Luis Guzman standing there. And he's, and like, he's wearing like a sweater and jeans yeah, or something. Like. I was going to say, he's in like jeans and a t-shirt. It's like so perfect. They, they oh, there's so many parts. This was one of those early episodes where you're like damn like they, these show writers and showrunners they have a very tight operation and again they have seen this world so to finally kick it over to you for yeah. that like talk to talk to us about this world building because I think you're so right on with this I I think that you know it comes through when you kind of watch this show intentionally and try as you said to kind of pick out like the origins of things that you know become more part of the fabric of the show later on and we're seeing the origins of a lot of stuff in mm. these first like five episodes. So it seems like the writers for this show had a clear idea of what Greendale is before they started writing. Definitely. Um, and it includes like the, the history of Greendale, like Louise Guzman. Um, <laughs> a couple of the other, you know, things that we talked about already were, you know, the first like Troy and Abed secret handshake. Annie screaming. <laughs> um, we're, you know, getting to know uh, Leonard and Garrett as regulars at Greendale. We have the Dean making an entrance. They, they clearly have a sense of what happens at Greendale and who's there and why they're there. And then there's also just, you know, fun things as a fan, um, thinking like somebody had to make that statue. Where is that Louise Guzman statue today? Because they didn't just think this up. They followed through and they did it. That, it's so weird. I thought that same thing. I was like, that statue's great. I wonder who kept it or if mm -hmm. they kept it, where it is. And I thought, God, I wonder who had to make that and like what, you know, what material they use. Because it's obviously not like a bronze statue, you know, but you're just like, man, it looks so realistic. And they took time with it. So you were talking about some of the things that emerge here. And so Garrett comes in towards the end. He's playing an alien for Abed's, you know, attempt to mess with Troy or prank mm -hmm. him that he's like an alien. And I think that's Garrett's second time here now because he was in the, um, the Duncan experiment or the yep. experiment for the Duncan principle. Leonard shows up in the pool naked, mind you. And that's <laughs> Leonard's first appearance, which is like so Leonard. 
But I thought that's what was great about this episode is not only do you have the main seven, the you know, the the study group, but you have Dean Pelton, Duncan, and Senior Chang with significant lines, significant mm-hmm. roles. Oh, Starburns got another yep. appearance in here. The Dean's entrance is great because as you said it's self self-referential. So they're in that like common area on that couch by the vending machines. And you know, Jeff's sort of like, wow, to Britta after she's admitted that she was the person who cheated. And she's like, you know, I wonder what they're gonna do to me. And the Dean comes in and says, Well, we're not gonna buy you any <laughs> he goes, Well, we're not gonna buy you an ice cream. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then he says, I'm like, wow, what an entrance I got to make there. And it's <laughs> like ding this is gonna be a thing and then when he leaves he says dean you later yes dean Uh, puns it's first (laughs) dean which are puns which is so (laughs) which is so great or they're like really bad puns if they are but yeah the first dean pun or as i wrote it down the first dean non-pun which i did laugh at so those are some of the um sorry to mean to derail you there but those are some of those like specific like first but just a question for you back on this idea of world building and the vision that these writers had. Cause I think the other thing you see is you get to see actually more of the campus. Like they're in this borchard mm-hmm. hall, they're outside, you get to see the main office. I guess my question to you is with this world building compared to maybe other shows, do you think that they have a level of world building that helps for those of us who are like community lovers and geeks kind of get drawn in because one of the things that I always loved about this show maybe more so than other sitcoms I've really loved I mean even like Seinfeld like I never felt like I was a part of Seinfeld's world you know what I mean never felt like I was part of the world of the Dick Van Dyke show or WKRP in Cincinnati. Yes, I'm just naming my favorite and what I think are the best American (laughs) sitcoms of all time, forgive me. But there's something about community from the beginning where you do, and maybe it's because we're academics, we're on an academic campus, but you feel so much a part of it. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on beyond the world building, the, the texture of it, what is it about this show that makes you feel so a part of it? Yeah, I, I see what you mean. Um, and I think it's a little bit having common experiences, like having gone to college, working at a university. Um, I did go to a community college for a year. That, that's definitely part of it. Nice. But I think like, I think a lot of the kind of references to other kind of stories, movies, the John Hughes, you know, universe yep. um, sets the show apart from other shows because the characters have the same references that we have. Most other yeah. shows kind of vacuum all of that stuff out of there. That's but this show so uses it. That's so true. Uh, it, it is. I'm thinking just off the top of my head, some other shows that maybe do that. 30 Rock has a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. That show Happy Endings, which I actually thought was really good and kind of underrated, has some of that. But you're right. I think Community and 30 Rock and maybe Arrested Development shows from like the 2000s, early to mid, well, in this case, 2009, but like that era of the late aughts or whatever that started to really do that meta fourth wall breakdown of like our references or your references. And I hadn't thought about that. That's so much a part of it, but there's also something too about the tone. And I wanted to go back to something you said, like with Britta's speech, there's something so human about what she's saying about Mm -hmm. her, you know, need to sort of fail. And, and there's something so real in the way she presents it as, as an actor, 
I think for me, that's always been a part of the way they build this world is these characters aren't perfect. They go through some shit. It's a dysfunctional family, but they all have these moments of real open and honest humanity mm-hmm. that I think some shows don't reach. And in a way, maybe like part of the reason I like this show is because like most human beings don't reach that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there was always a part of this show where I just felt like so involved in this world like this was actually a thing that was happening out in Greendale Colorado or whatever (laughs) and I just happened to be here in Indiana like privy to what was happening does that make sense but there's the actors are so good and the human element to these sort of revelations they have or these you know closing arguments these speeches there's something so real and well written that it adds to the world building beyond you know those um interesting moments of like the emergence of new characters or the expansion of the you know the members of the community and like and and all of which is correct i hope i'm not saying that you know that's not the case and i think you're absolutely right but i don't know there's an emotional quality to this show and i just am rambling but i'm just talking through it i wonder if you feel that same thing and i think it's partly it goes back to to jeff's closing speech about Greendale being a place where people who are not welcome elsewhere can make a home. And you kind of feel like, okay, if my life fell apart, I could go to Greendale. They'd accept me. I know, but isn't that part of it? You're like, I could see myself getting in. If not on this study group, (laughs) I'd be one of those characters in the background where, you know, um, like I mentioned a story to you about a guy that I gave a nickname to or whatever, you know, like you can see that. And I also think, and not to be like overly revealing here, but the time that this show was coming out, I was getting ready. I was living at home after I'd been in Eugene, Oregon for six months, I decided to go back to school and I hadn't been in school for a few years. So I was going to start with a master's degree before I came back to do the PhD. And for the master's degree, I ended up going to England for a year, yada, yada, yada. This is like, as this show's coming out. So I saw like the first three or four episodes, literally watch them live time on NBC, like mm-hmm. before I left. And then I had to wait a couple months for like to find the shows or stream them somewhere, find the episodes of community. Mm-hmm. And then as the show went on, it was a time in my life where I was doing the PhD didn't I was you know six seven years older than all the other people like in my cohort Mm -hmm. didn't really feel much of a community or sense of belonging where I was doing the PhD not because of anything ostensible about that place or those people but I was just a little older I didn't really want to go out and party you know like all those things and so in this weird way community like I know this sounds so sad but it really did become these people that I'm like oh but they'd be my friends you know (laughs) what I mean and I'd be their friends and so the show actually filled something in the time of my life where I had like an emotional vacancy I didn't feel much of a sense of a community and I sort of came to see the show as my community if that makes sense like you didn't literally see it as your community but it kind of like yeah exactly. hit those same notes it's exactly it it's like yeah no I didn't literally see it as my community but yeah. yeah like I saw it as a proxy for a community I wanted I guess or something is like the way I would say it you know what I mean there yeah. definitely was part of me that watched the show and was like I want to be a part of a misfit like ragtag group of people you know like and what better time to do that than your PhD years for anyone out there who's <laughs> done that or you know or like grad school years when you can kind of be just like a brief you know, ragtag group of people that, you know, supports each other through that. Well, and I think too, like, 
some of the really nice, like sincere moments of friendship in the show evoke kind of the same feelings that you have, you know, with your actual friends when you have a really nice moment with somebody. So I think that that it kind of, you know, it doesn't like meet your need for community, obviously, but it touches kind of some of the same places. No, that's exactly it. And that's why I said, you know, like, I thank you for helping clarify that and articulate that better. I think, as I say, not to over psychoanalyze myself, but I really I remember that time in my life. And I really felt like I didn't have a community and I didn't feel much of a sense of belonging. And watching the show and the way they act some of these really human moments, and they hit these certain tones or emotional registers that are very genuine and real sort of spoke to a part of me that like needed those emotional uh, moments and those tones and those registers but wasn't getting them from the people that I was around at the time Mm -hmm. um and so yeah that it did it honestly really did like vicariously in some sort of way satisfy a part of me that needed that. And I think that's why I always loved the show is like I said, I always, you know, I wanted to be part of Greendale, um, <laughs> but I'd know that it's not real. So in a way it was like, not just the escapism, but it hit some of those emotional notes that gave me a nostalgia maybe for times in my life, my undergrad years, my high school years, whatever, or, you know, moments with my family where I did have that real human connection and actually have that emotional register you know or a conversation with someone if that makes sense it totally does I and like you know with so many of the things we talk about it's not something that I thought about until we started having the conversation but I think that explains a lot of the kind of lasting appeal of the show yes that is that is for me why it always has this lasting appeal and hopefully always will um even though as you said like six time through watching it or whatever and it still does (laughs) all right are you ready for the coda okay yeah So there is another coda. It's a Troy and Abed coda. Uh, Do you want to tell the folks what disgusting thing they got into for this particular (laughs) coda? (laughs) So it opens on Troy and Abed in the uh, study room on the couch. And um, Troy kind of has his eyes closed and his head tilted back. And Abed is jamming pencils into his (laughs) open maw (laughs) there's um oh i didn't write down how many pencils it was but they comment on it and it's an obscene number of pencils it was Um, it was so bad (laughs) and it kind of seems like troy is maybe inexplicably asleep during this but then he kind of sits up and (laughs) takes this wad of pencils out of his mouth and just like i don't know if you noticed but like tons of drool comes like spilling out (laughs) it's so gross and he reveals that this is some kind of game they're playing where um they're trying to see who can fit more pencils in his mouth because then he says best out of three so it's like they're gonna go one more round you know it it sounds like maybe he lost to Abed and now he's like all right let's do it again though like you know best out of three or whatever but yeah they uh, have different pencils (laughs) what's that hopefully they have two sets of pencils thing because the way they filmed it i'm like i think he literally just took those (laughs) pencils and went right into abed's mouth which in our covety times like looking back on this 12 years later from a pando you're like yeah couldn't have done that you know (laughs) yeah that's never happening again (laughs) i'm sure they did it but i thought that same thing the way that was the way the way it was shot the way it was filmed i thought oh god i think he really did just like get up and start (laughs) jamming those in danny booty's mouth um that's amazing uh but another good troy and abed coda uh last thing and this was your idea i thought it was i think it's a great idea but we were going to maybe do our favorite moment of the show um Mm -hmm. 
So I'll go first because I already mentioned it, if, if that's all right. But yeah. really, that uh, my favorite moment of the show is Annie's speech just because it's so good and so <laughs> funny and reveals so much about her her youth her childhood you know her parent how she was treated that's just I thought it was really really mm -hmm. uh to repeat the phrase I thought it was really pitch perfect um yeah it was great it was yeah and I love the detail that she's gotten left behind at Taco Bell because you can picture that happening for sure <laughs> exactly uh oh <laughs> What about you? Was there something that kind of stood out for you as a, you know, take home moment, like a favorite moment of the show? So one of the reasons I wanted to do this was to intentionally make it difficult for us to pick yes. just one because there's so much that we love about it. Yep. And one thing that I love about this show that we haven't talked about yet is there's a moment at the very beginning when um, Professor Duncan approaches Jeff and he is trying to ascertain um, what Jeff's relationship to Britta is and if that relationship would be impervious to sabotage <laughs> to see if because he's interested in, in Britta. And they um, have this really strange exchange that is one of my favorite moments where um, Duncan says that, um, I, I think he just basically decides like, okay, Jeff, I'm going to let you continue to strike out with Britta and then I'll just move in later and as a like sarcastic thank you Jeff says cheers and at that moment Abed walks by and says mash <laughs> and then Duncan says faulty towers game over and it's so weird and I just love it I mean, again sorry for the hot mic but I gotta clap that one out I gotta give that applause I'm so glad you mentioned that because I had it written down I had it written down excuse me but I, I didn't get to it but for those of us that love sitcoms, love classic American sitcoms and British sitcoms, that is also such a pitch perfect moment. And the rhythm is just cheers, mash, faulty towers, game over. <laughs> so good. So good. Oh, thanks. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because really, thanks, Sandy, because that is like such a geeky sitcom meta, you know, pop culture moment. So good. And they're correct in that order, I think. Cheers, Mash, Faulty Towers. That's obviously how that order goes. That's the thing is, Duncan is obvious. Is, he's like any British chick. You're like, yeah, they got us there. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's funny. Like, I watched Cheers um, all the time when I was a kid. Like, I'd watch it at night with my mom. It used to mm -hmm. be on after the Cosby show, as I remember it, on like whatever must-see TV was called back then. It was on NBC, but it was Cosby show and Cheers, or if not in that order, like same night. And I remember watching Cheers. You know, I remember like... Frasier coming in and Sam mm -hmm. and Diane and all that kind of stuff you know when Woody comes into the show um so for me I know it better than MASH but having seen MASH and talked to people who watched MASH when it was around uh this is all just to say I agree I think you're right I think that's the order you know I think it's Cheers, <laughs> MASH, Faulty Towers, <laughs> Dick Van Dyke show no but those are all great sitcoms and just such a great moment so thanks thanks for bringing that up and that does, it also speaks to what we were saying about how like these characters share the same cultural references that we have. Yeah, exactly. And they yeah. say it in such a natural way you yeah. know, that you're just like, yeah, I could see that conversation happening. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, when you think about it, the inception of this pod was you and I talking about community and other shows that we like. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just like, that's how it works. You work with people or you go to school with people and you're just like, oh, I like this show. You know, there it is. But no, you're right. It's that, it's that, we're all in this same world, same cultural references. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for me, that's it. I think that's a wrap, unless you have anything you want to add. No, I think that's, you know, 
game over. <laughs> Perfect. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with uh, season one, episode six. Until then, stay safe out there. And yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back with season six, season six. We will be back with season six, but that'll probably be a decade from now at this <laughs> pace. Um, but no, <laughs> we'll be back with season one, episode six shortly. And don't swap spit pencils with your friends. <laughs> nice. Our theme music is Happy Dance by Cedric Galkey. Please subscribe to Streets Behind wherever you get your podcasts.